Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Dan DeVries, and today I'm so excited to welcome to the studio Associate Professor of Physics, Jonathan Levine. Professor Levine's interests are centered on the physics of the planets, planetary materials, and interactions between the Earth and its environment in space. His experimental work has included analysis of lunar samples collected by the Apollo astronauts, meteorites, pre-solar mineral grains, and interplanetary dust. Professor Levine teaches courses in the traditional physics and astronomy curriculum, such as Introduction to Mechanics and Solar System Astronomy, and also courses that draw heavily on his research themes, such as Planetary Science and a Core Sciences course on the Atmosphere. Professor Levine earned bachelor's degrees from Cornell University and Oxford University, and both his master's and his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. Professor Levine, welcome to 13. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. All right. Well, I am very excited about this, particularly since we've uh, we've talked a lot about your NASA work, and I'm excited to dig into that a little bit. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in physics in the first place. Where did it all start and particularly, when did you kind of fall in love with space? Oh, that's a great question. I think I was, without even knowing it, I was already in love with space when I was a child. Um, my parents, who were not scientists, were enthralled by the first the moon missions in the Apollo era. And then right when I was a kid, it was when Voyager 1 and 2 were flying by the planets of the outer solar system. And I remember that my dad bought a set of the NASA publicity posters of Voyager pictures from passing by Jupiter. It was 1979. And the one of Io, Jupiter's innermost of its large moons, ended up on my wall and my brother's wall, got Ganymede. Um, we had Europa and Callisto somewhere else in the house. And so I guess as a child, I was growing up looking at these volcanoes that someone else had discovered in an extraordinary picture. But, I mean, by today's standards, it's just an incredibly grainy picture <laughs> uh, uh, from taking, you know, half a billion miles away. And so I began incorporating the planets into all the artwork that I was doing in school. And, and they were creeping into other spheres as well. Uh, and then I found out when I was a little older, you could, you could study those things. And there was a science to them. Um, I fell in love with physics because I had a great physics teacher in high school. I think that happens to a lot of physicists. Mm, if mm -hmm. you go back and trace where they, they got their start, they'll point to someone who made a real difference for them. And then I was in college taking a physics class uh, on mechanics. Mechanics is all about motion. And the, the chapter in the book was about the spinning top and all the complicated motions of a spinning top. There was a throwaway footnote in one of the paragraphs about the spinning top that said basically, you know, the Earth behaves like this too. As it spins around, the Earth's spin axis wobbles, just like when a top is wobbling on your table. And that these wobbles of the Earth were implicated in the ice ages. And I thought that was just the neatest thing I'd ever heard. So this is before the World Wide Web was a big thing, but I, I, um, I found out that there was somebody who was studying this. I had a brand new website, uh, and he was studying this and in California, and I wrote him a letter back in the day. A letter was the kind of thing that, like, uh, 
a, a person in a blue outfit right. to carry, you know, from from one place to another place. Uh, he had an eagle on his lapel, and and I and a, a week later I got a phone call and uh, from a telephone that's with a cord and everything <laughs> um, from California. Yes, of course they would love to have me come out and work on this project in the summer, um, it, and that that was really what launched me was that that footnote and then making that connection to a person who was studying how how astronomical causes, changes in the Earth's rotation and orbit uh, were responsible for the largest kinds of climate, natural climate changes that uh, that happened to the Earth on the hundreds of thousands of years kinds of timescale. Oh, that's fascinating. So you went out there? I went out there. I spent the summer of, after my junior year and after my senior year in college. I was working in Berkeley already on what would eventually grow into my PhD work, but I was uh, started out as an undergraduate summer researcher. Oh, that's really cool. Huh. And... And now you're doing work that is going to eventually go to the moon, right? That's right. Can, can you tell me about Artemis and your work with that? Yeah. So NASA has, I mean, there's this major push for Artemis. Um, and part of that is NASA is trying to cultivate a commercial space industry. One of the, the sort of ways that they are going about that is that they are hiring commercial um, – rocketry companies uh, to carry scientific payloads. And the payload that I've been working on developing has been selected for flight on one of these missions. So in about 2027 or thereabouts, a yet-to-be-determined spaceflight company will launch a rocket with a lunar lander on the top to be built by a different yet-to-be-determined spaceflight company and on that lander will be about 110 pounds of payload that I am part of designing and then I'll be part of using and analyzing the data from that experiment. What we want to do is we want to measure the age of what appears to be some of the youngest volcanic rocks on the moon. So they're at a place on the moon called Ina. And Ina is situated in the caldera, the, in the, the summit pit of a large volcano. The volcano seems normal by moon volcanic standards in that the sides of the volcano have a certain number of impact craters on them that just tells us how long it's been sitting out there being rained on by meteoroids in the solar system. Okay. But the summit, where Ina is, has very, very few craters. Uh, and the craters that it has are very small. And so from what we think we know about the rain of meteoroids in the solar system, it looks like the summit part has been out in the open, exposed to space for a very short time. Very short, like astronomically speaking. What, like, what, is, what is short for like the moon? 30-ish million years. Oh, that's it. Okay. Like, so, you know, day before yesterday, cosmically speaking. The rest of the volcano is maybe 100 times older looking. Oh, wow. Something like we think it's like three and a half billion years old. So what makes Ina look so young? And there are generally, there's sort of, broadly speaking, there are two, two possible explanations. One is that it is that young, that it represents what is the youngest volcanic episodes in, in lunar history. So like the Earth, the moon would have started out hot and have heat inside for a certain period. But like the Earth is shedding its heat through volcanic eruptions and through the motions of the tectonic plates – eventually that heat source is going to be extinguished and the earth will freeze inside and it'll all be done. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry oh. to disappoint you. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say don't buy or sell real estate in the short term, but but like in the long term, sure. it's not going in a good direction. Okay. So the moon 
that process would have happened much faster because it's a smaller body, so everything on the moon is closer to the surface, and on the surface you can radiate your heat away to space. So a small planet like the moon should lose its heat faster than a big one like the Earth. So it looks like most of the moon is basically finished being volcanically active by about three or certainly two billion years ago. And then here's this a few spots on the moon like Ina that look like they're not two billion or even one billion, but like 0.03 billion years old or 30 million years old. And that's a real surprise to us. So maybe we don't understand how small planets work on the inside. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the summit of Ina is just as old as the rest of the volcano, but it just looks a lot younger because it has some way of either not making big craters or maybe not preserving them for very long times. So one of my colleagues has a theory that Ina is made from a very foamy kind of a rock, that if it was like a very bubbly magma that erupted there, that maybe the rock is just full of holes and vesicles. And so when it gets pummeled by asteroids falling in from space, it just it creates smaller holes because a lot of the energy from the impact goes into crushing the rock mm. rather than like shooting it all out to the sides. And so if that's true, when we get to Ida and we pick up a rock and we measure the age from the radioactive elements that are inside, we'll find a very old age, something like billions of years, and then we'll know that it's not that we don't understand how the moon works on the inside. It's that what we think we know about how old surfaces are from looking at them from, from orbit from far away may be misleading us. Mm -hmm. So either we're going to learn that we don't understand how the moon works or we're going to learn that we've been misleading ourselves about how confident we are about the chronology of the whole inner solar system. Uh -huh. So I'm excited to get to the, to the rocks to, to analyze them and to find out which of these things that we thought we knew we don't actually know as well as we had hoped. And, and what are the implications here? I mean, could this, depending on what you find, could that determine um, sighting for future lunar bases or something based on the geology? Or is this not, or is it more just about learning about this one particular volcano or just the volcanic, the history of the moon? It's a great question. So in this case, it's not so much about like lunar exploration at this site. We chose this site because it was a great place to address this science question, because the two hypotheses are so different from one another. Mm. I mean, either it's going to be like 30 million or 100 times older than 30 million years old. Where, where you might find a human exploration connection is, is, you know, we're trying to understand the habitability of other bodies like Mars. Mars suffered a catastrophic global climate change sometime in its past. I mean, Mars used to have... Uh, Water on the surface, at least for, uh, at least from time to time, we see what looked like shorelines. We see what looked like lake sediments. We see delta deposits, and Mars is dry as a desert right now. And what we see in some places are the salt that was left behind when water evaporated on the surface. So, it's plausible, at least, that Mars was once even a habitable world, and that habitability quality is gone, at least from the surface. Well, we don't really understand very well when in Martian history that would have happened or how long it would have taken. So I connect Mars to the moon because when we try to understand how Mars, what Mars history was like, our, still our, our largest clue is from looking at surfaces on Mars and seeing how pocked with impact craters they are. And if, that, if that's wrong, if, like, if it depends, if the how impact pocked a surface is, it depends not only on how long it's been sitting out in space, 
being rained on by meteoroids, but also on what the surface is made of, and we can't tell that from orbit, then all of our estimates of when in Martian history Mars might have been habitable could have been, could have been way wrong. And what could have caused Mars to become uninhabitable, our ideas may, may be we may be barking up wrong trees. Mm. So that's why I think it's an important experiment, not for the habitability aspects as relates to the moon or the exploration aspects for the moon itself, but because we can generalize our conclusions depending on what we find to all of the solar system, the mm. solid bodies in the solar system. That's neat. Um, I want to go back a little bit to how does one get involved with a project like this? I can't imagine you just woke up one day and was like, hey, it would be really cool to be part of a team that does a lunar landing. Like, how does this work? Does NASA put out a call and says calling all scientists? Or what, what is the process for, I guess, getting into the NASA fold here for something like this? I'm hardly an expert in getting into the NASA fold. This is my first toe in the water, as it were. But, but you got but, in. Oh, I got in. So um, I've been part of this uh, experimental effort since about 2014. But even before I was part of it, my colleagues at the Southwest Research Institute, uh, Scott Anderson is the head of the project, but he's been working on, on building an instrument that could date rocks, but that was portable enough to be thought about for spaceflight since about 2003. So it's been a long time mm. for Scott. I've been on it for, for a decade already. Um, Every couple of years or maybe every year now, NASA does put out a call for scientists and they say like, hello, scientists, uh, we would like to, this is what we have in terms of opportunities and um, we would like to open this opportunity for competitive bidding. And sometimes they're more tailored in what they say they're looking for. So um, uh, in 2021, they, they said we want to go to this particular spot on the moon and what kinds of payload instruments do you think would make for good science at that spot? Um, and they they picked that place not just you know on a whim, but because they have they have input decadally from the science community about where interesting places might be. Uh, we didn't win that proposal. We won a year later when they had a more open call for what would you like to send to the moon and where would you like to go? Oh, interesting. Um, so uh, so we thought that Ina really played to our the uh, the strengths of the instrument that we're developing. Um, and uh, NASA was persuaded as well. So we were selected last July. Now, what does this process look like as the, the buildup to the mission, right? So where are you at now in your, in your work and planning or building or whatever you're trying to figure out in the lab? What does that process look like leading up to launch day? And do you get to go watch the launch? Um, yeah, I'm glad you asked. So, so this is this part of this new commercial spaceflight initiative that NASA has in mind means that we, we can't even call our, ourselves a mission. We're going to be a payload right. on somebody else's mission. So our experiment is um, maybe sharing a bus ticket with other experiments, some of which NASA selects and some of which are going to come from other places, and some of which the, the company to be determined is going to sell tickets, and, and who knows who we're going to be sharing our bus ride with. Um, but from our perspective, the way that it works is we have, uh, at this point, we have a prototype instrument in a laboratory in Colorado. It's about the size of the studio where you and I are sitting right now. So what does that make it? About, you know, 10 feet by maybe 8 feet in the other direction, something like that. It's not going to fly. We have designs even detailed designs for how all the parts are going to get miniaturized. And some of those miniaturized parts 
are starting to come online right now. So we are replacing prototype parts with next generation parts, including some which are just about ready for flight. So we use uh, three lasers in the experiment. So for example, our lasers that we have uh, in the prototype instrument right now are sort of um, maybe six feet uh, long and they are about, I don't know, a foot and a half wide and a foot tall, something like that. Well, those are gonna get replaced by things that are about the size of a laptop computer. Mm. And so we can fly a stack of laptop computers. You can't fly a stack of, of you know, table-sized lasers. Um, uh, so all of the parts that are in the experiment, we have ideas for miniaturizing them, but miniaturizing them costs money. And so now that we have support from NASA to go forward on a flight model, we're going to use that money to build the flight design parts. So that means uh, lasers. That means a device for picking up rocks off the surface of the moon and gripping them and 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 bringing them up to the uh, to the instrument for analysis. Um, it means the actual electronics that are going to control the whole the whole assembly. Um, and then we are going to build it, uh, starting basically immediately. Uh, you know, and and we have to have it done by mid twenty twenty six which is frighteningly close. Yes. Right? So by mid-26, the idea is to deliver our, our instrument to the lander uh, provider, whoever that company is, and uh, for them to be able to bolt it together onto the, the platform of the, of, the, you know, of the craft that's going to take it to the moon. Now, because you are hitching a ride here um, and you have to deliver this uh, payload right in, in 2026 – is there testing done by NASA before it goes, or is this all up to you? You have to do all your own testing and making sure everything works, or does the company do anything, or is it kind of like you hand over the package and they're like, thanks? Yeah, no, we have our own testing to do, and then I hope the the lander people will do their own testing as well. Uh, once we have all of our components, of course, we have to put them all together and make sure that, that everything works the way it's supposed to with each other. Um, we also have vibration testing we have to do. I mean, it's going to get lifted off on a rocket, so it's going to get shaken around a lot. Yeah. So uh, one of my colleagues here at Colgate works with lasers all the time, and he would not let me pick up his lasers and shake them. I mean, this is just not a thing that you do, right? So um, uh, we're going to shake them around to make sure that all the alignment on all the pieces is still just right. So when it get, I mean, when it gets to the moon, it's got to just work. There's no one going along to tighten a screw if you know if a mirror got mis misaligned on on the way. Um, uh, so there's vibrational testing, there's thermal testing that needs to happen because it has to be able to operate over the course of a lunar day without an atmosphere. So it gets quite hot on the surface of the moon when it's in sunlight, and it gets quite cold when you're out of the sun. What are the ranges you're looking at? Yeah, so it gets to be about. Uh, I think the numbers that people talk about, and here I'm not an expert. It gets to be about 120 degrees Celsius on the moon in the daytime. So that's like in a range of 240 or something like that, 250 Fahrenheit. And then in, when you're in the lunar night, uh, it, it's, about, uh, it's about negative uh, 100 Celsius. So it's like minus 125. It's a lot. It's a, I'll look up the numbers after we talk. Okay. If you will, but it's, right. it's, a, it's sure. a much bigger range than we're accustomed to on the Earth. And so that means... That as the we're gonna we want to lay in order to have, well I should start with this we get one day, on the moon, because Explain. when the when the when the sun goes down yeah. 
we can expect our instrument's going to freeze and we're done. Oh, really? Okay. So the good news is that a day on the moon lasts 14 Earth days. The moon always keeps that one face towards the Earth, and as it goes around the Earth, that means that it's whatever face you're interested in is facing the sun for half of the month. So we get our, our lunar day is 14 or so Earth days. We can land right after lo- local dawn. The sun's just come up. The shadows will be long, right? But, but then as the, we have almost 14 days um, in which to make our measurements for and get all the data back before the instrument goes to goes to a long and restful sleep. <laughs> okay. And so where do you do that control? Like where where do you send your commands to this thing? Or is it all pre-baked into the programming? Yeah. So no, we're gonna have to run some of it in real time. I mean it, we can do that on the moon because the moon is only only two light seconds away or something like that. So so you oh. know we can send commands to the moon and and the instrument can 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 do it and they will get it back in nearly real time. Um, you'd have a harder time doing that. You know, Mars is seven light minutes away. And so when they programmed the, the spacecraft, you probably saw this on online, they programmed the, yes. the controls for the, re, the entry into the Mars atmosphere, and then they just have to sit and hope that it worked. Right. So we're not going to have that problem because, first of all, I don't have to control the landing. <laughs> That's somebody else's job. And because there's no atmosphere and because it's only two light seconds away. Um, so, but what we, we hope to have... Uh, a little rover on the surface that's going to carry, go to go around and collect samples and bring them back to the instrument to be analyzed. And uh, as we drive around, um, we'll need to be able to say, oh, well, watch out for that rock right over there. But it's, you know, as long as it's less than two seconds away, we'll have time to gotcha. to make changes. So during this one lunar day of, of operations, we're going to have to be working 24 Earth hours a day because we'll, that's our time. I mean, we can't just be going to sleep and losing half the time. So we'll be in shifts, you know, <laughs> but we'll all be together, I expect, in, in Boulder, in Colorado, okay. uh, uh, controlling the science operations for this, this experiment. Um, uh, we need to coordinate with, uh, with NASA for communications with the satellite. I mean, NASA has to be able to take time to, like, also talk to Mars and wherever else they have their, their, their spacecraft. But, but during... During operations, we expect to have communications with the spacecraft for about 18 out of any 24 hours. It's mm, really neat. Right. So, so all of these things need to be planned and coordinated, um, uh, and we have to know – we have to be able to analyze our data in real time. That's one of my jobs for the team is to put together the, uh, the software that's going to help us to, to, to see what we've got as we've got it so that we can know – you know, oh, should we keep looking at this same rock again, or we have we learned what we're going to? We should put it down and pick up a new one. Those kinds of decisions need to get made in real time. All right, neat. And uh, do you have any students involved in this project? I do. I've had a number of great students over the years in this project, going back to uh, at least 2015, 16. Um, uh, students have been involved in the development of the of the project, in testing out the prototype instrument, finding out what works and what doesn't work. Finding out what so that, what way we know what we have to do when we get to the moon, and also what definitely not to do once we get to the moon. Um, I've had students who have been trying to understand how the lasers are going to interact with the atoms that we're gonna gonna be analyzing. Uh, I've had students who are doing computational modeling of the of the physics of the laser atom interactions. So I mean, like it's a quantum mechanical process to understand how the experiment works. 
And then here we are addressing planetary scale questions with it. That's one of the parts I love. I've had students who are who actually work with the instrument and so are really involved on the macro scale of like, well, here's a rock and what can we learn from this rock? Um, so I've had students working on it at all levels and I expect that'll continue as we go forward too. Oh, what a amazing experience I imagine for your students to be involved in. I hope so. I can't get over it myself. So I, <laughs> I hope that they're a little, gog, uh, a little agog about the thing too. Nice. And, um, you know, along the lines of students, I understand you are the current leader of the Benton Scholars on campus. I am. That's one of my pleasures, too. I just love about my job that I get to hang out with smart people and talk to them all day. Uh, and that's my colleagues. It's it's my students. It's all the people that I get to talk to. I feel like that as well. It's pretty awesome. Um, so tell me, what, what the, tell me about the Benton Scholars program a little bit more. Who's involved, how they get selected, and I guess what the cohort is up to this year. Yeah, thanks. The Benton Scholars are are students who we're trying to um, support and nurture and cultivate their creativity and their intellectual independence. So uh, this year, for example, the new Benton Scholars, they're selected in the middle of their first year, and they're taking a course with my colleague Karen Harp in the geology department. Her course is about developing human-centered approaches to ameliorate some of the aspects of climate change. So students are studying their own climate footprints, and they're trying to figure out interventions that can, on the one hand, be meaningful for reducing our impacts on the climate system in general, but also be plausibly implementable. I mean, it's one thing to say, like, well, if we would all not drive anywhere, we would be doing better by the earth. And this is obviously true, but not likely to happen, right? And so uh, they are engaged in a process of of identifying, measuring, uh, communicating with stakeholders in different arenas, depending on what their individual project is focused on, um, and then potentially actually implementing some of their their projects. So the Benton scholars are chosen with this particular course in mind. Uh, A year ago, it was a very different course. It was uh, a reading and writing course on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, both in uh, with literary perspectives and with historical context. Hmm. Uh, And that was taught by my colleague, Alice Nakamovsky. Uh, a year before that, the, the Benton students took a course on misinformation and disinformation with Meg Worley and Will Sapoli together. So with um, uh, uh, sort of how both language and statistics can be manipulated, both uh, I, su- I think both consciously and sort of subliminally to, to force different outcomes onto anyone who uses them. And so we're always looking for courses that will just let our students take ideas they develop in those courses and then run in different directions. And then what we do with our our Benton scholars is over the summer after their first year, they can propose um, a a small project, which we we have financial support for students to, to do, and it can be something that's related to the themes of the course or something that just they push on their own in a different direction. So to give you an idea of what some of our students have done, Angie Zhu is a sophomore this year, and she went to Costa Rica last summer. She wanted to do marine 
conservation biology. And to do that, she needed to learn scuba. So she took five scuba certification courses and then used her scuba to, um, to look at, uh, to, to actually do restoration work on a coral reef uh, offshore in, at this place in Costa Rica. Um, uh, another student, Ben Mitchell, went off to the American West and got himself on a dinosaur paleontology dig. Uh, one student named Peter Biss, another sophomore, uh, he is interested in, in language, and he's actually a poet as well. And Peter wanted to look at how language reflects bias in media coverage of the presidential debates. It was an interesting project because the debates are something which happen every four years. So he was able to look back historically, and he wanted to know in an evolving media landscape, has uh, bias become more pronounced in the way that media outlets cover this, this recurring event. Um, and so he was able to look at not only the sort of the, the intensity of the, of the qualities ascribed to the candidates in news reporting of the debates, but also the, and he, he was able to look for sort of shifts in how, um, in how the, 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 the coverage has evolved over time. It would be a fun episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's it very would. interesting. Right? <laughs> And so you see these students, and I've just chosen three because those are the three that popped into my mind first. Right? Every student gets to pick a project, and they can all, and they're all so different because they reflect the creativity of each individual Benton scholar. And that's what I think is so wonderful about the program: is I'm not giving these projects to the students; they're coming up with these things on their own because they come in with interests and talents, and frankly, what they see as as gaps that they want to fill in their own. Um, body of experience, and then they go off and they do them. And then they come back and they share with the community some part of that intellectual journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had students who are interested in, in, in techno music and, and in uh, sustainable living and ecology. I had a student who was interested in how uh, political influences show themselves in the artworks of contemporary Kenyan artists. And so she, we were able to support her on a trip to Nairobi where she got to meet with artists and gallery operators who talked about the works that they they create and the works that they of the artists they represent like all great projects she ended up answering a slightly different question than the one she asked when she went and it was just so interesting to watch that process unfold with her that's a student named Abby Call huh. and and, uh, and and it's just so interesting to watch how that project unfolded for her and to see where she went with the kinds of observations that she was making there. Really, it's such a wonderful uh, thing for me to be able to watch these bright students do great and interesting things. I love to hear that. It's like journalism. They say follow the story. So like just because you have an initial supposition or a question or an idea doesn't mean that's where the story leads. So that's right. it's neat that research can do that Research well. is the – I think my experience certainly is research is the same way. Wow. Um, now, how does that work? Do, do students apply to be Benton scholars, or are they selected? Are they just kind of plucked from campus and, um, I guess, given this kind of honor? Yeah, the answer to that has changed with time. But since 2021, I think, students apply once they're on campus in their first year. Okay. The faculty director and the instructors of the course they'll be taking later that year work, uh, collect- uh, work collaboratively to select the scholars from among the applicants. Um and uh, and then once once you're uh, once you're chosen, 
there's there's this course the students take together. Then they get this um, uh, this mini grant to go and fund their independent project in the summertime. And then the students come together again in the fall of the second year for a, a, a fractional credit course on turning their creative projects into a, a, an effective public presentation. I mean, we would like to all be able to go to Nairobi. Yeah, sure. Right? And until that day comes, uh, it's, it's, it's lovely to have the students share part of their intellectual journey with the rest of us when they get back. Um, so that happens in the fall of their second year. And then what we try to do is to we try to keep the Benton Scholar community uh, uh, focused around sharing and exchanging ideas over the whole four years that a student is here. Nice. Right, a couple questions for you here. Uh, one is I've heard that you utilize the Hotung Visualization Lab quite a bit in your classes. Is this true? And what do you do there? Yeah, I taught Intro to Solar System Astronomy in the Viz Lab twice. And uh, it is fabulous. So I was always the kind of teacher, Dan, who was afraid to move too far from the chalkboard. I my style is I just cover the board with <laughs> with with diagrams, with equations, with arrows. Um, and then COVID came, and um, and and in during the COVID semester, that first semester when we were back in the fall of 2020, mm -hmm. I taught in a tent outside on the parking lot outside of Olin Hall. Oh. And 48 at a time, very brave and 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 heat and cold tolerant students <laughs> took Astro 101 outside on the in, under this tent with me. And um, uh, some other time I'll tell you how it went in November when I had to use the projector to warm my hands. Oh, okay. Man. But but in the meantime I realized that if I could work on an iPad I'd use my iPad as my chalkboard, and it would what I wrote on the tablet would just show up on the screen behind me. I could do that anywhere. Uh, so the next year, I, I talked with Joe Aiken, who's our fabulous, uh, I don't know what Joe's official title is, but it should be VizLabsR. With Joe's help, uh, we could switch back and forth between my drawing diagrams and writing equations and drawing arrows, which we could show in one portion of the planetarium dome, and actually looking at the sky. But even that wasn't the best part. The best part was that the, the our planetarium is a, is a digital, immersive cosmos. So much of astronomy is about learning to see phenomena from a different perspective. You know, so like think about Copernicus, for example, right? Everybody thought that the whole cosmos revolved around the Earth. And he says, no, if we if we look at everything from the point of view of the sun, then the motion is simpler. It's not that one had to be wrong or one had to be right. It was that it simplified our model of what was going on if we put the sun at the center of things. Because if you were to sit on the earth and watch the planets go around, they're mostly going from west to east across the background of the stars, but then they turn around and go the other way, and then they start going forwards again. And Copernicus said if we could watch it from the sun, that wouldn't happen. Everything just goes around all in one direction. Well, from the VizLab, we can just take off from the earth if you want, and we can just gradually shift our view to the sun, and we can just watch the same motion happening from another perspective, and that becomes so much clearer. Mm. I'd like to do a whole unit on how we understand the geometry of the cosmos. And, and even 2,000 years ago, the Greeks were figuring this stuff all out by drawing in their mind abstract triangles, like between the sun, the moon, and the earth. Well, you, 
you can make that abstraction much more real if you can just blast yourself off from the earth and then look down on the whole system and see, oh, yeah, there's the earth, the sun, and the moon, and draw a triangle. Well, Joe can do all those things with software. You just you just watch the earth receding into the distance, and then you just you just draw a line, and those triangles are become crystal clear. It was like drawing them on the chalkboard but without having to make the leap of like, oh, yeah, now where am I? You just go there. So, so Joe was a huge help in making those – those ab- leaps of abstraction into something that you could just go along for the ride. Right. Joe, Joe is the technical director and designer, Visualization Lab and Planetarium. Seems like she should have a bigger title than that. Yeah, it should be like Emperor of Emperors <laughs> of the Hotung Visualization Laboratory or something like that. Something that is befitting his unique abilities to make uh, to make magic happen. Up I, could, there. I could see such a benefit of like you doing a, um, a complex equation. And showing how that applies to the heavens right there. I mean, is that something that you do? It is sometimes. One of the things I like to share with with our students is that if it weren't for um, uh, the universe being what Einstein called invariant uh, to, to um, straight line motion, then the sky would not be as blue as it is in practice. All those two things, the, the beginning of that sentence and the end of the sentence don't sound like they have anything to do with each other. But Einstein was the one who made a big deal of the fact that, like, all of the laws of nature should look the same, should be the same, basically, if if you are uh, th- believe yourself to be at rest or if you believe yourself to be moving in a straight line with constant speed. Well, one of those things means that if if an electrically charged particle is at rest – then it can't shed energy in the form of electromagnetic waves. So if the laws of nature apply the same to something that's moving in a straight line with constant speed, then it also can't shed energy as waves for moving in a straight line with constant speed. And and you might, oh, okay, I'm willing to accept that, but that's not true for boats. If you send boats on the water, even if they're moving at a constant speed, they make waves and the ripples go out from the boat. Now, you might get a big wave if the boat, like, suddenly, if there's a jet ski and it, like, suddenly turns around and it gives you a big splash or something like that. But boats make waves even when they're moving in straight lines with constant speed. And, and electrically charged particles are forbidden from doing that. And Einstein's relativity is the reason how we give to understand that phenomenon. So, so we'll, we'll actually, you know, we'll go through that argument. But then Joe can also change the color of the sky in a way that would be uh, uh, appropriate if relativity weren't true and if electrons and charged particles could emit radiation just for moving and it is a much paler kind of a sky than the real sky. And students notice that right away. So, so I mean, not, not actually because we live in a place where the sky is not always that blue. But <laughs> but but when we – you can compare the, the – the, the real blue of the sky and the pseudo blue of the fake sky, and it's easy to see the difference. It just becomes that much more tangible when you can when you can compare back and forth, and you feel like you're in it. So you teach a number of different classes, and, and much like all – I think most professors here, you, you, you've taught in the core. Uh, curious what your favorite course to teach is. Funny you should ask that. <laughs> My favorite course to teach is whatever course I'm teaching next semester. Is that right? Yeah, I love the anticipation of a new course. And and when it's when it's still new and there's no homework to have to grade this week, 
it's a new adventure all over again. I love the steepest part of the learning curve when when I'm right at the beginning of something and I have to make sense out of it from scratch. So uh, like to give an example, when I first was teaching my core course, which is on the atmosphere, it's called the air up there. <laughs> and and I, I wanted to just start with a bunch of naive questions and just figure out what is the science that one would need to answer these questions. So the first day, the, the question is, well, how much air is there? And it turns out you can weigh the atmosphere with a barometer. But, but how will we know the answer once we've looked at our barometer? And so we, we, we sit together, the students and I, and we, we imagine the air molecules, every single one of them bouncing off the walls and pushing on each on the wall as it bounces off and pushing on the little thing of mercury, the pool of mercury at the bottom of, of the barometer. And, and the strength of that push depends on how many molecules there are and how fast they're all going, and we and and that's it actually. How many molecules they are, and how fast they're going. And so we we can figure out how fast that we can at least estimate at this point how fast they're going because because we know the speed of sound, and sound is the collective motion of all these molecules. And so all that's left to figure out from once we know the push, which we measure from the barometer, is how much air there is. And it turns out that in an average-sized classroom, there's more air than the heaviest person. No, yeah. you mean in, in the weight of the air? The weight of the air in this room okay. is larger than the weight of you or me. Okay, it's interesting. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, then the question becomes, well, if there's so much air, how come we can see through it? And I always, when I was a kid, I had a naive understanding of that. I just thought that the molecules are so small yeah. that I, if I just shoot an arrow, as it were, like it just dances between the raindrops and it gets all the way to you, no problem. That's not true. Not true at okay, all. Okay, I knew that. Well, atoms <laughs> are really small, but there's a lot of them. I mean, there's much more air in between us than like if I held up a sheet of paper, we couldn't see through the paper, but there's more air between us than there is paper between us, and yet the paper blocks all that light. And so you have to start talking about some quantum mechanical effects to explain why the light can go through the air molecules and it can't go through the paper molecules. And then, then like... By the second week, we're talking about, well, well, why was the chicken, well, I like to call it the chicken little problem. Why was chicken little wrong? Why doesn't the air all fall down? I mean, like everything around us gravitates. Yes. It all just falls down. But the atmosphere hasn't just all fallen down or has it. And so, so for that, we have to talk about thermodynamics. And so every class period, we start with a naive question, like chicken little, and, and then we're doing some neat science to understand mm -hmm. it. That's what I love is figuring out how those things are going to work out. How am I going to explain why this why the sky doesn't fall? Wow, that's awesome. I like that, and it's very much like this podcast. We start out with naive questions, and yeah. uh, hopefully, we learn a little bit by the end. That's right. Um, so you've made it to question thirteen. Oh, hooray! Congratulations. You were keeping score. I, I wasn't even keeping score. I try. Okay. Um, it's a loose score. If anybody's counting at home, okay. um, sometimes we're a little over, sometimes we're a little under, Excellent. and uh, fortunately, nobody's counting. So, um, question thirteen. For people that are interested in this, do you have like a top, you know, three or four or five books to learn about the universe? What what would be the books you would tell people to read if they wanted to learn more? Um, for for the I don't want to say layman, but for someone who dabbles um, in this kind of thing or who's really interested in the universe or quantum physics or um, things of that nature. That's a great question. I've got two recommendations and 
uh, one I may surprise you because it's it's a work of fiction. So, oh, I see your face. Good, mm, excellent. I like it. All right. So, um, book number one, which is not a work of fiction, is called "Was Einstein Right?" And now it's almost thirty years old, or maybe older. Um, the author is is Clifford Will, although we're going to double check that. The book is about Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is our theory of how gravity works, and it's a geometrical theory. Einstein says that the very fabric of the universe is curved in the presence of mass or energy. And so objects which we think of as falling are, even if they're falling like a, like a, like a baseball hit to the outfield, you know, it's a, it follows a curved path. But that curved path is as straight as the thing can go in a curved space-time. Okay. So um, uh, think about... Think about a globe. Okay. If you have two, um, two runners, uh, they don't have to be very swift because it's going to take a long time anyway. But if you start two people at the equator and you tell them walk in a straight line going north, they're going to get closer and closer together as they get closer to the North Pole. And at the North Pole, they're going to converge. So walking in straight lines in a curved space, the globe is supposed to be a curved space, will allow parallel lines to come together. So in Einstein's view, that's what gravity is. That's crazy. But it also appears to be right. So Will's book, Was Einstein Right?, goes through in very approachable language. What is the evidence that would lead someone to want to believe that this crazy idea about curved four-dimensional space-times is actually the universe in which we reside. Hmm. And it was written before the discovery of gravitational waves in 2015. They're about. 2016. <laughs> One of those is going to have been right. Um, and um, well, you know what it was? It was, just, it was observed in the winter of 2015 and published in 2016. I'm going to stick with that answer. All right, I like yeah. it. Um, and so it does. It it. I think it speaks to that prospect as another test. But Einstein proposed, even in his lifetime, several tests of how we would know if general relativity was correct. And the theory has passed every one of those tests. Wow. So that's the first book. Was Einstein right? The second one is also got Einstein in the title. It's called Einstein's Dreams, and it's by Alan Lightman. Um. That's a work of fiction. It's 60-something very short chapters. The whole book is very slim. It fits into your pocket. Um, and it is musings. Uh, the, the, the conceit of the book is that Einstein is uh, busy being a patent clerk in Bern. It's 1905 or so, and he's just imagining how time could be stranger than we ordinarily conceive it to be, which is correct. Time is stranger than we ordinarily conceive it to be. And so in each one of these 60-something chapters, uh, time is bizarre in a slightly different way of being bizarre. And then you sort of see as, as you know, as people go about ordinary people in ordinary places like Byrne go about their ordinary lives with a slightly weird time, slightly off things happen. And one of those 66 is the off way that time actually is. And it's no more or less weird than any of the others. <laughs> it's just that that's the right weird way. Hmm. 
and the book is just very lovely and and it it just a it broadens your idea of of our own universe as being a strange place even though we understand its strangeness because we've been living in it I but like it. yeah so it's a lovely book i recommend those too all right and do you have any books about the moon that you would recommend i have a moon book to recommend for you okay it's called the big splat the author is dana mckenzie our present understanding of how the moon formed is that a large planet, planetary-sized body, maybe something as big as Mars, smacked into the Earth early in solar system history, and that the moon formed out of that, the debris from that gigantic impact. But this, this theory of the, the big splat, it, it wasn't like it was born all at once out of one person's genius, like our picture of general relativity, for example. The consensus sort of emerged in the 1980s when all the other hypotheses of lunar origin were all coming up short against the measuring stick of the information brought back from the Apollo missions. And and this book, The Big Splat, shows not only why we think this is how the moon formed, but it, it follows how a, a, a new scientific consensus really happens. Hmm. I mean, the characters in the book are the, the scientists who were involved in that, in that process. And it shows in a real-life example, not just in a philosophical way, but in a, in a real-life example, how old ideas are cast aside and new ideas emerge. Hmm. So I'd read that again. I like that. Professor Levine, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, today. Dan. It's been a real pleasure to be really with you. Awesome. Um, tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions about any of the things that we've spoke about today, please feel free to send them along to thirteen at colgate.edu. That's thirteen, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive producer L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host. Daniel DeVries. Audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate by visiting colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.